This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book as a PDF. Through New Eyes Developing a Biblical View of the World James B. Jordan Copyright 1988 Published by Wolgamoth and Hyatt Brentwood, Tennessee Before the Great Three One They all exalting stand and tell the wonders he hath done through all their land. The listening spheres attend and swell the growing fame, and sing the songs which never end, the wondrous name. The God who reigns on high, the great archangels sing, and a holy, holy, holy cry, Almighty King, who was and is the same, and evermore shall be. Jehovah, Father, great I am, we worship thee. Before the Savior's face, the ransomed nations bow, overwhelmed at his almighty grace, forever new. He shows his prince of love, they kindled to a flame, and sound through all the world above, the slaughtered lamb. The whole triumphant host give thanks to God on high, hail Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they ever cry. Hail Abram's God and mine. I join the heavenly lays. All might and majesty are thine, and endless praise. Thomas Oliver's The God of Abram Praise, stanza 9 through 12. 18. The New World. The coming of the new covenant is a story that does not need rehearsing in full here. There was a decline in the centuries before Christ, as the Jews gradually lost the true understanding of the old covenant and developed a corrupting tradition. The announcement of the kingdom by John the Forerunner was simultaneously a condemnation of the corruptions of Judaism. Matthew 3, verse 7 through 12. John's announcement was a preliminary judgment, and Jesus' announcement was the full judgment. Matthew 23 through 24. The Exodus was made by our Lord on the cross on behalf of his people. Luke 9, verse 31. After this transition, there was a new world established with a new name for God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, and a new name for the people, Christians, Acts 11, verse 26. The new grant given God's people was a kingdom in its fullness, including the whole world. There was a new law, John 13, verse 34, new sacraments, baptism, and holy communion, and a new visionary symbol, the new Jerusalem. The Summation of the Old Covenant From the perspective of the New Covenant, the Old Covenant in its entirety from Adam to John the Baptist was inadequate and imperfect. It was a system under law in the sense that it could only condemn men, not save them. The entire Old Covenant stood in Adam, and Adamic humanity existed under the condemnation of the First Covenant. Having seized the forbidden fruit, they were exiled from God and destined for death. Although each of the new covenants before Christ provided a more glorious kingdom establishment for God's people, yet before the coming of the Messiah, the world was still in Adam. Thus, the glories of the old covenant could never be anything other than provisional and anticipatory. In order for a holy new covenant to come, someone had to fulfill all the righteousness of the law, something Adam had failed to do. There had to be a new Adam, and thus a new creation. And so we read that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, 
born of a woman, born under law. Galatians 4 verse 4. Jesus took unto himself the law, God's perfect standard of holiness as expressed in terms matching human nature at that stage of history, and fulfilled its terms. In the death of Jesus Christ, the law, indeed the old Adamic covenant in its entirety, died. In the resurrection and transfiguration of Jesus Christ into glory, the law and the old covenant were resurrected as a new covenant. We have mentioned that during the Old Testament period, the prophets who called the people back to the standards of the earlier covenants, though when the revival came, the new form of the covenant would always transform and transcend the terms of the previous one. Just so, Jesus began his ministry by calling men back to the old covenant law. His prophetic words are found in Matthew 5, verse 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Verse 17. The word fulfill here does not mean simply cause to stand, but implies transformation into a newness of power. It means to bring something into its fullness, a fullness not previously seen. Thus, it is a good term to use to refer to the transformation of the old into the new. The new covenant is not going to replace the old with something different in kind, but only different in glory. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall pass away from the law, until all is accomplished. Verse 18 As we have seen throughout this book, the passing away of the heavens and earth does not need to refer to the physical world. It often refers to a covenantal establishment. Here, that is clearly what is in view. After the cross, the church certainly does not keep every jot and tittle of the old covenant law. Once Jesus had accomplished his work, the law was changed. For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. Hebrews 7 verse 12. The old heavens and earth passed away in the first century AD. And at that time, many of the jots and tittles also passed away. Their purpose fulfilled at last. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments, and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 19. The idea here is this. Anyone who presently ignores the Old Testament law will find disgrace and condemnation in the new kingdom that will come. But anyone who scrupulously keeps all the Old Testament law at the present time will be great in the kingdom when it comes. The Pharisees in their teaching were sitting aside the commandment of God in order to keep their traditions. Mark 7 verse 9. Such men were annulling some of the commandments and they would find condemnation. Thus Jesus concludes by saying, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20. We are used to thinking of the scribes and Pharisees as meticulous men who carefully observed the jots and tittles. This is not the portrait found in the Gospels. The scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus encountered were grossly, obviously, and flagrantly breaking the Mosaic Law. While keeping all kinds of man-made traditions, Jesus' condemnation of them in Matthew 23 certainly makes this clear, and does a famous story in John 8. There we read that the scribes and Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman taken in the very act of adultery. John 8, verse 1 through 11. How did they know where to find her? Where was the man who was caught with her? Apparently, he was one of their cronies. Also, when Jesus asked for anyone without sin 
that is not guilty of the same crime, to cast the first stone. They all went away because they were all adulterers. Remember the point we made in chapter 15? The Mosaic law was an easy yoke. It was not hard to keep. The parents of John the Baptist kept it perfectly. Luke 1, verse 6. They obeyed the law, and when they fell into sin, they did what the law said to do about it. Thus, when Jesus called the people back to the law and warned them to do a better job than the Pharisees, he was not laying some heavy burden on them. Actually, he was lightening their load. Each time the covenant changed in the Old Testament, there was a change in law. In one sense, each time the change was total in that the form of the law changed and the historic circumstances of its phrasing and application changed. Yet, since the law reveals God's character, its fundamental content can never change. At the same time, God only reveals his law to man in specific forms and circumstances. Even the form of the Ten Commandments changed between Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. It is because the fundamental content of the law never changes that the prophets called men back to the older law each time. But it is because the circumstances of history change and mature that the new covenant, when it comes, is always different in form. The changes in law during the Old Testament were relatively minor compared to the change from the old Adamic covenant to the new covenant, as we shall see. Law, Wisdom, and Paradox In calling the people back to the old covenant law and prophets, Jesus simultaneously advanced the standards of the kingdom a step further. We have seen that God gave the people a written law for the Mosaic establishment, but that in the Davidic establishment, the focus is on wisdom based on the law. The people were to take the principles of the Mosaic law and apply them to new and changing circumstances. In the Restoration Establishment, wisdom was taxed further since under imperial rule the Jews were unable to keep much of the law in its original form. Jesus takes us one step further, from law and wisdom to what I shall call paradox. A paradox is an apparent contradiction that forces us to meditate on deeper meanings. There is a great deal of paradox in Jesus' teaching and in the teaching of the New Testament as a whole. In the Sermon on the Mount itself, Jesus said concerning adultery that if your eye offends you, pluck it out, and if your hand offends you, cut it off. Matthew 5, verse 27-30 Concerning justice, Jesus said not to resist him who is evil, and to give him who asks of you. Matthew 5, verse 38-42 Those who wish to become pacifists and take Jesus literally on the subject of not resisting evil must also take him literally on chopping off hands and ripping out eyes. Of course, no one does the latter, and the church has always recognized the wisdom paradox nature of Jesus' teaching here. A second realm of paradox is seen in the parables, which were both clear and deliberately obscure. Jesus made it plain that he used parables in order to instruct the righteous and to confuse the wicked. Matthew 13, verse 10-17 this conception of truth and teaching is utterly opposed to the Greek rationalistic tradition in Western thought, which assumes that unaided reason is able to apprehend truth. Jesus says the opposite, maintaining that the truth is only finally reasonable to the elect, while the wicked can ultimately never regard it as reasonable. This applies not only to the parables, but also to the whole of truth. It is a fundamental aspect of the Christian epistemology. A third realm of paradox lies in the area of reward. Speaking to the children of Israel, God, Leviticus 26, and Moses, Deuteronomy 28, held out rewards for faithfulness 
and punishments for disobedience. In general, the rewards had to do with prosperity and the punishments with affliction. By the time of Solomon, wisdom had begun to perceive a more mature view of reward and punishments. In Job, the wise man found that the righteous sometimes suffer for no cause of their own. In Ecclesiastes, the wise man found that simply looking at rewards and punishments gets you nowhere in evaluating the world. In the New Testament, however, we find highlighted such thoughts as these. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 8. The first part of this statement is from Proverbs 3, verse 11 through 12. But it is a truth that comes to sharper focus in the new covenant. Why? Because in dealing with children, Galatians 4, verse 1 through 3, we must express reward and punishment in terms of pleasure and pain. But in dealing with adults, we can invite the wise man to consider the chastisement is itself a reward and a sign of sonship. To be sure, the rewards and punishments expressed in Deuteronomy 28 are not abolished in the New Covenant, but with them also comes a paradoxical and wisdom-inducing reward of suffering. The Order of the Kingdom In the New Covenant, a different kind of polity was established, though it had been anticipated earlier. The synagogue, as it developed, moved gradually away from the Levites and prophets into the hands of gifted laymen. In the New Covenant, the sacramental aspects of worship were transferred from the temple to the synagogue, and the church was born. The church is the first, but not the only form of the kingdom. When the kingdom comes to a new locality, it does not come first by force of arms and the establishment of a Christian civil order. It comes first by persuasion and charity and the establishment of worship. Worship is man's first duty. When the church as a sacramental, instructional, and governmental body has become established in a locality, kingdom influences flow out into society, and a new Jerusalem is built around the new sanctuary. The transition from the Mosaic establishment to the new covenant entails a gradual shift from civil to ecclesiastical punishments. The Mosaic law prescribed death for a variety of crimes. During the later years of the Davidic establishment, when bad kings were on the throne, the Mosaic penalties were ignored. It was necessary for the synagogues to enforce the law through excommunication. This became even more important during the Restoration, when the Jews were frequently under imperial law and could not exercise civil punishments. John 18, verse 31. With the opening of heaven and the restoration of the keys to man, the flaming sword given by the cherubim back to Peter and the apostles, the central form of discipline in the kingdom became excommunication. Matthew 16, verse 19. The wielding of the keys, which must always be in terms of biblical standards, is a far more powerful social force than mere capital punishment, according to the spiritual insight of the New Covenant. Of course, when the church influences society, then godly punishments are set up in society as well. All the same, the most important fulfillment of the Old Testament penalties lies in the sanctions exercised by the elders of the church. The Restoration of Type and Symbol The Jews of this period had almost completely perverted the law. 
As we have seen, they were not keeping the moral requirements of the law. Neither did they understand the symbolic aspects. When Jesus told the Jews that if they destroyed the temple, he would raise it up in three days, referring to his body, they were utterly confused. John 2, verse 19 through 21. Similarly, when Jesus talked with Nicodemus and referred to the water-cleansing rites of the Old Covenant as a means of resurrection and new birth, Nicodemus was confused. Jesus expressed amazement. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? John 3, verse 10. In the first century, the Jews had rejected biblical symbolism and typology and were divided into two groups. The Pharisees had turned symbolism into moralism and were keeping the law as a means of salvation. The Alexandrian Jews had replaced biblical typology with allegories grounded in Greek philosophy. As a result, neither group was able to recognize Christ when he came to them. It was the task of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament to restore true biblical symbolism and typology and to show how the Old Testament revealed Christ. It is for that reason, among others, that John writes his gospel as a tour through the tabernacle, that Paul explains that the tabernacle and temple were symbols both of the individual believer and of the corporate church, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, 6, verse 19, that the author of Hebrews expresses shock that his hearers do not understand the Old Testament symbolism and typology, Hebrews 5, verse 12 and that Jesus had to explain the typology of the Old Testament to the two men on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, verse 27. Thus, when Jesus came to be the true prophet, he first of all had to restore the Old Covenant, both in its moral and in its symbolic dimensions. An interesting example of this alluded to above is found throughout the Gospel of John. In John's Gospel, Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of the tabernacle, before looking at this, let us consider the relevance of it. If Jesus Christ is God's true tabernacle, then we who are in Christ are in the true body politic, house of God. Moreover, since the cosmic heavens and earth are also imaged in the tabernacle, if Christ is the true tabernacle, then all the cosmic heavens and earth must also come to be in Christ, so that in him all things hold together. Colossians 1 verse 17 By presenting Christ as the true tabernacle, John is not simply giving us snapshots of redemption in the narrow sense. He is also presenting us with a worldview, a new universe. As Paul puts it in Colossians 1, the second person of the Trinity was the center of the first universe, and the God-man Christ Jesus is the center of the new universe. Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20. 1. Creation. Point A. And he is the image of the invisible God. B. The firstborn, i.e. captain of all creation. C. For in him all things were created, in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. D. All things have been created through him and for him. 2. Restoration. Point A. He is also the head of the body, the church. B. And he is the beginning, the firstborn, i.e. captain, from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. C. For all the fullness was pleased to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. D. Through him, whether things on earth or things in the heavens.
Accordingly, the tabernacle commentary aspect of John's Gospel is not merely a curiosity. It is rather a profound statement of the nature of biblical worldview. In Christ, the entire social order and the entire cosmic order are renewed. One other point that should be made is this. John's Gospel is not only a commentary on the tabernacle. John also comments on the various feasts of the Old Testament and on other matters as well. The tabernacle is only one dimension, one layer of his gospel. With this in mind, let us briefly toward the tabernacle. John begins in John 1 verse 14 by saying that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The reference to glory is to the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle and was enthroned in it. John begins where the priest would begin with the labor of cleansing. Here the priest would wash himself and also the sacrifice before offering it. Jesus is both priest and sacrifice and also the one who washes living sacrifices, the church. Thus John 1 verse 18 through 34 concerns the baptism of John the forerunner. In John 2 verse 1 through 11, at a wedding, Jesus takes water out of the six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification. 2 verse 6, and turns it into wine. In John 2 verse 13 through 25, Jesus cleanses the temple. In John 3 verse 1 through 21, Nicodemus engages Jesus in a discussion of the new birth, of water and the spirit. In John 3 verse 22 through 36, John's baptism leads to an argument over purification and a discussion of Jesus as the bridegroom. In John 4, verse 1 through 42, Jesus presents himself as a bridegroom to a Samaritan woman at a well. In John 4, verse 46 through 54, Jesus restores a dying boy to life at Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. 4, verse 46. In John 5, verse 1 through 47, Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda and then gets into a discussion with the Jews about resurrection. This concludes John's section of the labor, which has revolved around the water, purification, baptism, resurrection, and Christ as bridegroom. John then turns to the table of showbread. In John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, calls himself the bread of life, and tells the people that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. Verse 53. In John 7, Jesus presents himself as the drink of life. Verse 37 recalling the libations that went with the showbread and meal offerings. The lampstand comes next. Jesus presents himself as the light of the world in John 8. In John 9, Jesus heals a blind man. In John 10, Jesus presents himself as the good shepherd. The connection of this to the lampstand lies in the fact that David was the good shepherd of the Old Covenant, and the Bible repeatedly speaks of David as a lamp. 2 Samuel 21, verse 17 1 Kings 11, verse 36, 15, verse 4, 2 Kings 8, verse 19, and 2 Chronicles 21, verse 7. There is a conceptual parallel between a lamp shining in a dark place and the voice of the shepherd heard by the sheep. In John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus, explaining that it is a matter of awakening him from darkness and sleep to light and day, verses 9 through 11. In John 12, Jesus comments that those who had not believed in him were blind but that those who did believe would become sons of light. Verse 35 through 41.
Starting in John 13, we move through these items of furniture a second time. Jesus washes the disciples' feet in 13, verse 1 through 20. He breaks bread with them in 13, verse 21 through 30. Then he moves into a discussion of the Holy Spirit, the ultimate archetype of the seven lamps in the tabernacle, John 14 through 16. After this, Jesus prays his high priestly prayer at the altar of incense, John 17. The crucifixion and death of Jesus involved a double motion in terms of the tabernacle. The sacrifice was made outside the tabernacle in the courtyard on the altar. Then, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest took the blood into the Most Holy and presented it before the throne of God, Leviticus 16, verse 15. Just so, we see the Lamb of God sacrificed outside the gate, and then he presents his death before the Father's throne, Hebrews 9, verse 7. 23 through 26. Under the law, when the high priest came back out from the Most Holy, still alive, it was a sign that God had accepted the sacrifice. The resurrection of Jesus fulfills that type. Also, when the high priest offered the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, he put aside his garments of glory and beauty and wore a simple linen garment. Agreeably, when Peter entered the tomb, he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. John 20, verse 6. Because Jesus had put back on his garments of glory and beauty. Leviticus 16, verse 4, 23 through 24. When Mary Magdalene looked into the tomb, she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. John 20, verse 12. Arthur Pink comments, who can doubt that the Holy Spirit would have us link up this verse with Exodus 25, verse 17 through 19? And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold, and thou shalt make two cherubims of gold, of beaten work shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat. The tomb enclosed by the great stone formed but one more most holy place, all the more so because here the incarnate word was placed. Outside the tomb was a garden, John 19, verse 41. A reminder of the garden sanctuary is the tabernacle. When Mary Magdalene saw Jesus, she rightly recognized him as the new gardener, the new Adam, John 20, verse 15. The Magdalene, restored from her seven demons, Mark 16, verse 9, symbolizes the church, the new Eve. John is not finished with his Edenic motifs. As God breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2, verse 7, so Jesus breathes life into his apostles in John 20, verse 22. As naked Adam hid in the garden, so naked Peter hid in the sea until Jesus restored him. John 21, verse 7. As Adam named the animals, so Peter and the rest of the disciples are told to guard and feed Christ's sheep. 21, verse 15 through 17. Thus our Lord wrapped himself in the garment of the old creation, and in his death and resurrection created it anew. But what is the new creation like? The new heavens and earth. According to Revelation 21 verse 1, the work of Christ brought about a new heavens and earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. This is explained a few verses later as new Jerusalem coming from heaven, overlaying a high mountain which is the earth. Thus, the new Jerusalem mountain complex is a picture of the new heavens and earth. This is often nowadays taken to refer to the final eternal estate, but I believe the older commentaries are right in referring it, first of all, to the gospel age. After all, 
and the new Jerusalem, the leaves of the trees, are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22, verse 2. Something that will not be needed after the last judgment. Also, people are invited to wash their robes and enter the gates. 22, verse 14. And the spirit and bride summon outsiders to come in. 22, verse 17. Clearly, such evangelism will not take place after the last judgment. So while the fullness of the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth will not come until after the last judgment, yet they are spiritual realities now. Thus Hebrews 12 verse 22 says that we have already come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Both the literal heavens and the governmental heavens have been changed. The literal heavens were changed when a man, Jesus Christ, ascended into them for the first time and sat down next to God the Father. Hebrews 9 verse 24, Revelation 4 through 5. This had never been the case before because Adam and his posterity had been barred from the garden and from heaven. Now that Jesus has taken his throne, there is no longer any room for Satan in heaven. And at last, Satan is cast out. Revelation 12 verse 9. The change in the literal heavens necessitated a change in the governmental heavens. The saints are seated in heaven with Christ. Ephesians 2 verse 6. And thus are stars. Philippians 2 verse 15. The total church is pictured as seven lampstands, with their elders as seven stars, Revelation 1, verse 20. Thus, the church as a whole, and her leaders in particular, constitute the new heavens. The old heavens are cast down. In the old covenant, there were two political heavens, the sun, moon, and stars of Israel, and the sun, moons, and stars of the nation. The heavens of Israel were destroyed in AD 70. And this is pictured in Revelation 6, verse 11, as the fall of her sun, moon, and stars. The heavens of the nations began to be shaken down immediately after the destruction of Jerusalem, according to Matthew 24, verse 29. See our discussions of these passages in chapter 5. As regards the earth, we find the same dual change. The literal earth was changed at Pentecost by the descent of the Spirit. Until the ascension, there had never been a man in heaven, and until Pentecost, the fullness of the Spirit had never been poured out on the earth. The coming of the Spirit literally changed the earth. This literal and cosmic change on the earth resulted in governmental changes as well. Previously, the priests had possessed a status different from that of the lay Israelite. Only priests were permitted to draw near into the holy place. Now, however, all believers are in Christ. And in Christ, there can be no distinction of access. Christ is at the right hand of the Father, and in him all believers have fuller access than anyone had in the Old Covenant. Also, formerly Jew and Gentile had been separated, with the Jews as priests of the nations, and only Jews allowed to draw near into the courtyard and eat Passover. Now, however, all believers are in Christ, and in Christ there can no longer be such distinctions. Thus, the Jew-Gentile distinction was obliterated. Ephesians 2, verse 11 through 22. As a result of the elimination of these distinctions, the distinction between priestly garden and the lay Israelite land is broken down. Also, the distinction between Edenic land and other lands is eliminated. In fact, since the Gentile lands are often pictured as the sea, there is no longer any sea. Revelation 21, verse 1. Moreover, with the outpouring of the Spirit and immediate access to heaven anywhere, there can no longer be any central sanctuary on the earth. Hebrews 9, verse 8, 
10, verse 19 through 22, 12, verse 18 through 24, Matthew 18, verse 20. The central sanctuary is in heaven, where Christ is. Those fundamental reorganizations mean that the kind of cosmic model found in the Old Testament will no longer do. We no longer have five environments with five different degrees of access to God. Heaven, firmament, heaven, sanctuary, land, and world. Now all believers have the same access, and all believers are outside. There are only two environments. The concept of the world changes in the New Covenant. Formerly, the world included converted and unconverted Gentiles, all those outside the land. Now, however, world implies that the realm outside the kingdom altogether. The New Testament speaks of worldliness and of the world, flesh, and devil in a way not found in the Old Testament. Particularly speaking, the distinction between places of worship, sanctuaries, places of family life, homes, and places of work, world, is still valid. The distinction no longer has anything to do with nearness to God, however. There are no more holy places on earth, only designated places. The radical character of this change is pointed to by Jesus in his curse upon old Jerusalem, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Matthew 23, verse 35 through 36. Since the temple in view being built by Herod had only come into existence with Ezra, we might expect its destruction to include all the martyrs from then on. But that is not what Jesus said. Since Jerusalem had been built by David, we might expect her destruction to include all the martyrs from then on. But that is not what Jesus said. Since the Old Covenant received a definitive proclamation by Moses, we might expect its destruction to include all the martyrs from then on, but that is not what Jesus said. Since the present heavens and earth, 2 Peter 3 verse 7, had been set up after the flood, we might expect its destruction to include all the martyrs from then on, but that is not what Jesus said. No, Jesus went all the way back to the original order of creation, to the first martyr. The whole order of the first creation, with its heaven sanctuary Eden world divisions, was going to be wiped out. A new creation had come. Thus, the cosmic model presented in Revelation 21 through 22 is different from anything found in the Old Testament. There are only two environments, inside the New Jerusalem and outside the New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem is a hollow pyramid, a shell of gems that comes out of heaven and is laid over a high mountain, Revelation 21, verse 10. It symbolizes the body politic of the church, 21, verse 12, and 14. It is sanctuary and land rolled together, and set up on earth as in heaven, so that it is four square in shape like the heavenly most holy, 21, verse 16. It has no temple, because it is so tall that it pokes through the firmament, except that there is no longer any firmament to the very throne of God. 22 verse 1. Unlike tabernacle and temple, which were enclosed and thus dark except for the lamps, New Jerusalem is open and always daytime. 21 verse 23 verse 25. In summary, the symbol of the new covenant gives us only two environments. There is the holy combined heaven, sanctuary, and land of the new Jerusalem, and there is the defiled combined hell and world of those outside her walls. 
This ministry of the church is to persuade men to flee through her gates and be saved. History The coming of the new creation was in three phases. The first phase was in Jesus Christ alone. During the years of his earthly ministry, he was the kingdom. His disciples followed him and experienced a foretaste of his kingdom. But before Pentecost, the kingdom did not come to them. Only then were they clothed with power from on high. The new kingdom could not be envisioned by the disciples. They and the rest of the Jews believed that Jesus would simply restore the glories of the Davidic monarchy in an imperial form. This was a logical vision for them to hold in terms of development of history, but it was an error. Just as the Hebrews in Egypt could not have envisioned the tabernacle, and just as the Israelites of Samuel's day could not have envisioned the temple, so the Jews of Jesus' day could not have envisioned the new covenant. Before Pentecost, the disciples were still so confused as to ask when Jesus was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Acts 1 verse 6 After Pentecost, the believers continued to be somewhat confused over the relationship of Jew and Greek, so that it took miracles, confrontations, and a church council to establish the new nature of the new covenant. Acts 10 through 11 Galatians 2 verse 11 through 21 Acts 15 the second phase lasted from Pentecost in A.D. 30 to Holocaust in A.D. 70. This phase is known in the New Testament as the last days, a phrase that unfortunately has been often misapplied to the time just before Christ's second coming. During this phase, Ishmael and Isaac were together in the house, competing for possession of the kingdom. Finally, Ishmael was cast out, and Isaac stood forth as sole heir, Galatians 4, verse 22 through 31. Also, during this 40-year period, the church despoiled the old covenant of its treasures, as Israel spoiled Egypt and as David spoiled the Philistines. These treasures built the new temple of God, his church. Thus, during this period, the old heavens and earth coexisted with the new. What came down upon the disciples at Pentecost was God's glory cloud. When we remember that the tabernacle and temple were old covenant architectural models of the glory cloud, it is apparent that the new Jerusalem descended from heaven at Pentecost. What John sees in Revelation 21 is but a picture of what happened in Acts 2. It was on Pentecost that God gave the law from Mount Sinai. As the cloud covered Mount Sinai with wind and fire and thunder, so there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Acts 2 verse 2. The cloud was also filled with fire, which was distributed to the disciples. Acts 2 verse 3. As the cloud filled the tabernacle and temple, so the cloud filled the whole house where they were sitting. Acts 2 verse 2. In the Old Covenant, when the cloud filled the house, the priests had to flee. But in the New Covenant, the church is in Christ, and thus is not driven away from the throne. Exodus 40 verse 35, 2 Chronicles 5 verse 14. The heavenly cloud pattern typologically imprinted itself on the house, creating a new world, and also upon the individuals in the house, filling them with the Spirit, Acts 2, verse 4, and creating a new humanity. The often controversial gift of other tongues was bestowed at Pentecost. According to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20 through 22, one of the primary meanings of this gift, if not the only one, was a sign of judgment upon Israel. The gospel was going to the Gentiles and would be preached in new languages. If Israel was to hear it, they would have to hear it in other tongues. Indeed, the New Testament would be written not in Hebrew, but in Greek. 
Such languages would sound like drunken speech, Isaiah 28, verse 7 through 10, Acts 2, verse 13 through 15, but would actually communicate judgment. Throughout the book of Acts, the gospel went to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Finally, in Acts 28, verse 28, Paul declared to the Jews that full judgment was coming upon them and that the kingdom had been taken from them. Finally, after the elimination of the competition in A.D. 70, the new kingdom stood forth in glory. The former heavens and earth were done away, and the new had fully come. Yet while the initial coming of the kingdom was in three stages, there is yet a fourth and final stage to come. After A.D. 70, God made it clear who the true heirs of the old covenant really were. All the same, the church still exists in conflict in this world, and no matter how glorious the kingdom may become, she will still experience difficulty and death, and will still coexist with unbelievers. Only with the second coming of Christ will the kingdom be finally come in all its fullness. Typology It remains only to note that all the different heavens and earth, all the different establishments of the old covenant, are typological of the new. There is instruction for the church in every aspect of the Old Testament. The book of Revelation, which deals largely with the destruction of old Jerusalem, begins with letters to seven churches. The message to these churches is this, You are the true heirs of the Old Covenant, but watch out. If you commit the same sins as Jerusalem, you will be punished as Jerusalem is about to be punished. So take heed. Each of these seven churches was a true and separate church existing in Asia Minor. In the providence of God, however, each church was in a different spiritual state. These seven states correspond to seven stages of Old Covenant history. We have only explored six of them in this book. The imagery used to describe each church is drawn from the stage of history appropriate to it. What we learn from this is that we can draw parallels between our present churches and civilization to specific times in the Old Covenant, analogies that will help us understand our present predicament. I shall make an attempt to do just that in chapter 19. Conclusion the New Covenant establishment can be set out as follows. New names. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ. People, Christians. Grant, the New Jerusalem, which is the church and the kingdom, and the world as the place New Jerusalem is to permeate. Promise, I will be with you even until the end of the world. Stipulations, sacramental, water baptism, and the Holy Communion. Societal, the entire biblical law transformed through wisdom and paradox into the new covenant as illustrated but not exhausted in the epistles. Polity, church, temple sacraments and synagogue preaching are rolled together. There is no longer any bloodline of priests. The church is the first form of the kingdom around which a new culture develops. State, Romans 13 says that the civil magistrate is set up by God to be an avenger of blood. Under Christian influence, the magistrate is persuaded to avenge blood according to the standards of the Bible. Christ is world emperor before whom every local prince is to be persuaded to bow the knee. But no, we have moved beyond priests, kings, judges, kings, or emperors. Depending on times and places, the typological principle expressed above any of these kinds of government can be appropriate, provided it is Christian. Symbol, the New Jerusalem. The Church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. 
She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Elect from every nation, yet one over all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses, with every grace endued. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish, as with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, and false sons in her pale, against or foe or traitor, she ever shall prevail. Though with the scornful wonder men see her sore oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cries go up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. So, Lord, she stands before thee forevermore thine own. No merit is her glory her boasting this alone. Then she who did not choose thee came chosen at thy call, never to leave or lose thee, or from thy favor fall. For thy true word remaineth, no creature far or nigh, no fiend of ill who reigneth in hell or haunted sky. No doubting world's derision that holds her in despite shall hide her from thy vision, shall lure her from thy light. Thine, Thine in bliss or sorrow, as well in shade as shine, of old today, tomorrow, to all the ages thine. Thine in her great commission, baptized into thy name, and in her last fruition of all her hope and aim. As she on earth hath union with God the three in one, so hath she sweet communion with those whose rest is one. With all her sons and daughters, who by the Master's hand let through the deathly waters repose in Eden land. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with thee. There past the border mountains, wherein sweet veils the bride, with thee, by living fountains, forever shall abide. S. J. Stone, 1885 The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.